My name is Efren Brynin. Hi, and this is the Bear Yourself podcast. Each week we'll be talking to different guests, uh, talking about their experiences and some of their incredible stories. This week it's the turn of Mark Billy Billingham. Mark, or Billy as he's better known, spent in excess of 27 years in the military, 18 of those in the SAS, um, serving all around the world on operations. Uh, After the military, Billy became a celebrity bodyguard, did a lot of work for charity, set set up his own charity, Rebuild Globally, with his wife Jules, Um, and also became more of a household name, I suppose, through the Channel 4 series, SAS Who Dares Wins, which is where I was fortunate enough to meet Billy when I took part in the second series. We filmed this, or we recorded this in the lead up to Remembrance Sunday, which is a poignant day for both of us and shared some of our own feelings and experiences um, on loss, on war and all, all things in between. So I hope you find it interesting. Uh, it was a fascinating discussion. I love talking to Billy. I consider him a friend and I could could have talked to him for hours and hours and hours. So I hope you enjoy it. And this is Billy's story. Billy, thank you, mate, for joining. I really appreciate you joining the podcast. I was thinking the other day, we've known each other for six years we first met in 2013. It was May 2013 because it had just been my birthday. We flew out to Ecuador. And do you recall the first thing that you said to me? You won't, but I do. I'll probably, it, it was somewhere along the lines of, what the fuck are you doing here? How old are you? Or something like that. You no. said, what's your name? And I said, Ephraim. Oh, no. oh, no. <laughs> yeah, and you went, oh, I, on the bridge before I threw yeah. you off. What sort of a name is yeah, that? What sort of a right? fucking name is that? And I looked at you and smiled, and you said something about a man called Sue. I was like, what, what the hell is yeah. that? And then you said, look up, look down, step forwards, and push me off. What I meant to say is, I can't yeah. swim. I thought I'd mention that to you, but it never came out. <laughs> Next thing I knew, I was Mate, dropping. <laughs> the outcome would have been the same. I'd have still thrown you off the bridge. But I was thinking, what does he mean, a boy called Sue, or a man called Sue? Something about Johnny Cash was all I could remember. But, yeah, so we've known each other a long time um, back out there, and I know the show's changed so much since then. I mean, you've got male and female, celebrity side of things as well, which is all new as well. And there's been a, a with the exception of, I think it was your first series as well, the one we did the second series, there's only yourself and Foxy remain. Everybody else has sort of been replaced if that's the right word or moved across there's been a lot of them as well i mean how how is it now doing the show for you is it still the same sort of experience or has it changed a lot over the years have you changed grown into it changed how i don't know what your perceptions are when you go into i mean how do you feel when you start one well i mean when when on the first one your one when i was started i didn't really know what to expect and what to think or how i was going to be or how i'm going to play this so the one thing that is still the same from back then to now is the fact that the show is run like a course. You know, we forget the cameras, forget it, and we try to keep it as authentic and as realistic as it as we possibly can. Um, it's evolved with every every single one. You know, we learn lessons of how to get the best out of people and what what the show's really about. And on yours, funny old thing is when we did the mirror room sort of stuff, I hated it. I didn't understand it, why are we doing this? But now, I understand, I, I think the mirror room is the main part of the whole show now. Because it gets somebody's story out, and it's not to say every story is the same, it's sad, it says, but it gets the story out. And from that story that comes out, you know, we can add our experience, and we're no, by no means experienced or professionals on dealing with psychology and all that sort of stuff, and how to really handle it. We'll put our spin on it of um, the experiences we've had, but but the beauty of it, and where I've seen it evolve too, is the fact that the person sat in front of us in the mirror room, we've generally changed their life because we've come over, we've understand your your, your sadness and your reasons, and but however, and we've given those per, that person a, a chance to sort of go, okay, got it, pick myself up, move forward. But the beauty of that is 20,000 plus people watching that show when that comes out beyond the screen go, wow, if he can talk about it like you did or so-and-so, then I can. And it helps so, so many people. So from the start to when I first started, I didn't really know what to do and I didn't like that bit. 
to where I am now, I think I love it. I think it does so many good things for so many people. I agree. I, I don't understand why in that room people are happy to become so vulnerable. It's really weird, isn't it? It's But they probably talk about things in an instant straight away that they haven't spoken to people they've known most of their lives. It's really powerful how people become really vulnerable and they feel safe in that environment it's I don't really know why that is but it's because it's not I mean I've been it's not it's not even that intense it's just I don't know I honestly don't know but you get such people to talk about stuff that that is incredibly powerful it just creates that space where I think every single person like yourself like myself like everybody we've all got something we're not comfortable with we kind of want to talk to and we don't know who to talk to and, 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 and share it with or spread it or say it. I don't know why that environment does produce that space, but it does. All of a sudden, it's, it's not like a... Somebody described it one time as like a police interview. Miss Nice cop, bad cop. It's not quite that. It's not that. It's actually... It's, it's just... I think for, for the person that's sharing the story, it, it just gives them that... The sense of you can trust in speaking to us, I guess. I, I believe you, you can. Tell I think me trust is a big part trust, of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're probably looking at us, especially in your scenario, for sure. You're looking at somebody that shared the scenario that you want to talk about. We've been there, we've seen it, we've done it. Although it's a different experience to what you had, so I think it feels very, very comfortable to people to be able to in that room share that the scenario and situation but I don't know what why it is how it is but it, it does everybody does everybody, I believe everybody walks out that, that that mirror room two inches taller because they've got that frigging pain and that burger off their back yeah I agree why I said the same, same to myself why why are you sharing that now why why are you here doing this but, but you know most people go to church and go into a silent little room and have a prayer and say their little thing and feel I think this opens it up to. I've got nothing to hide to anybody. I don't. It's not in a secret little room. It's, it, this is to the world now. Yeah, it's, it is. It's a great. It is a great thing. But it, weirdly enough, it, although it's really comfortable to physically to do it, to watch it back, I find incredibly uncomfortable. Weirdly, it's the converse thing. I guess that's the looking at yourself in a photograph, but twenty times worse. It's a real weird experience to look it back because, of course, it's. Often it's edited slightly differently. So mine, I guess I was in there for maybe 20 minutes, 25 minutes to make two minutes of TV. So mm. it's different the way it comes out. And, and it wasn't a com- for me, it wasn't a comfortable watch backwards, if that. Because I suppose because you're being yeah. so honest and you don't tend to be that honest, especially in a scenario like, like that either. But no, it's is a great formula. I wanted to ask you a little bit about you before you... I mean, everybody's kind of aware of... Uh, of the military stuff, the celebrity stuff, the bodyguarding. But going back to when before you enlisted, when you were a young man, I know you were uh, raised in in the Midlands, and the, the world was really. Di- I mean, being a child of the seventies and eighties was pretty bloody brutal in comparison to what it is now. And I think pe- youngsters nowadays, although it's very different for them the way they're coming up, people forget how it's, it's pretty grim in in England in the seventies and eighties with the. The race, yeah. you know, the the class stuff, the miners' um, strikes, the riots, yeah. the poll tax riots, the football, all of these different things. It was very different. So, what were you like, and what was your, uh, I guess, what was your scenario, your, what was your prospects? I suppose when you were up, growing up in the seventies and eighties in the Midlands. I mean, the seventies, eighties, is you know, was my period of growing up. Of course, it, it was. I talk about this in my shows. At the time, poverty was it was the normal. You know, my pet. Although you say poverty, my, my dad worked twelve hours, my mum worked twelve hours. They both had jobs, but they were working so hard. But what they were earning was next to nothing. We were struggling. We had next to nothing. But everybody around us were in the same boat. You know, you just alluded to it was the miners' strike. There was racism problems. There was. You know, it was awful. It was a, a tough old time. Looking to me, it was a good old days growing up. To me, that's all I knew. Um, and it was around where I was growing. It was all gangs and 
little kids or everybody fighting for survival, really, to be somebody. And I thought that was that. Well, that, that's what I knew. That's all I knew. So that's I wanted to be part of that. I wanted to be part of a gang yeah. and do all that sort of stuff, you know. So it, it, it was tough, but it, but to be fair, it made me the person I am today. It gave me a lot of strength, understanding of resilience, understanding of you know self motivation getting up and going out there, no one's going to give it to me, I've got to go and get it. It made me strong. And, and I think there was a lot of qualities to that time of growing up that we're missing today, you know? I agree. Although, and, and it was, it was definitely not a safer place in the world back then, as opposed to what it is now, but we're really the wrong way around. Like, we talk about today, like everybody's trying to hurt you or kill you and you can't talk to people and you can't do this and well, probably back then was how it should have been, but it wasn't, you know. We went out till eight, from 8 in the morning till 10 at night. We had no phones. We had no street lights. Yeah. But we, we seemed to do all right. So so it was a t so going back to how, how was it, what it was like, it was it was tough, but it was the norm. It was To me, it was the norm. That's what I was born into. If you're born into a particular place and, and, and now you're parents, it is what you believe. And that's how I was born. I was born into... A poor family, you know, and he was like literally first up, best dressed. You grabbed whatever clothes you could get. You, you ate what you had to eat because that's all you're gonna get. There's no choices. You didn't have luxury and all this sort of stuff. It was tough. It was hard, but he was. He was. I would say he was happy. He was good. And I think we need a little bit of that. We need a bit of that now. And it was what it was, though. Efron, you know, he was honest. Yeah, it was. It's only when you look back at it, when you see it on telly back, that you realise how tough it was. And when I remember, for for, I went out for a mate's sixteenth birthday, and his dad was an architect, so he was posh, and I had scampi. I didn't even know. I thought it was an actual fish scampi. Obviously, it's not. I've seen it. Scampi was like a luxury. And I was sixteen the first time I had scampi, which sounds embarrassing to say it now. My kids wouldn't believe it, but it was, as you said, it was just the way it was, and it was a lot. It was different. It was hard. You had the Cold War. You had all of these things going on around the world. And I'm guessing what must have been a big influence on you enlisting would have been the Falklands, which, of course, back in what, 82, yeah. which must be a similar sort of time to when you when you joined. Was it early 80s? Yeah, 83. I joined a year after the Falklands War because I was actually talking about this today. You know, I, I kind of, growing up, uh, I was a bad kid. And, you know, I'm not blaming anybody else but me. I knew what I was doing right and wrong. And when people say, oh, he's only 11 years old, he doesn't know right. I, I knew what I was right and wrong. And kids do. But I chose the wrong path because I thought I could get away with it. You know, I ended up with a um, criminal record at the age of 11. I got thrown out of school at 13. I um, got stabbed at 15. I was working it. So, but, but I knew, you know, what I was doing... I knew what I was doing. I knew what I was doing, but I chose to go that sort of way, you know. But, um, you know, when I look back on all that sort of scenario and what I did back then, I, it kind of, I look at it and go, right, what I was doing was wrong. I've learned all the lessons from it and I take forward all the good bits from it, you know, and I pass on all, the, all those messages of how I was and what I did back then to, I don't, I'm not ashamed to talk about it. I'm ashamed of what I did back then, but I'm not ashamed to talk about it and say to, to so people nowadays go, well, right, okay, that's not the right thing to do. This is what I should be doing. But you probably wouldn't have got to point exactly. B if you hadn't have been through point A. That's that whole process, isn't it? As you were saying and alluded to, you wouldn't have got to where you are now if that stuff hadn't, hadn't have happened. So you're enlisted in at 83 uh, into the parachute regiment. Mm. So how were you, about 18, 19, something along those lines? I was, yeah, 17, 17 and a half, just going 18. So the Falklands, the Falklands had just happened. Um, I was due to join at 16, but I ended up in a factory, I ended up getting injured, I got delayed. Um, by the time I joined, it was 1983. So when I joined, everybody had been to war, everybody had been to the Falklands. So these people were no-nonsense mm -hmm. people, you know, so I, I now joined one of the, the best regiments in the world, the, the parachute regiment, and tough, tough people. And I was like, wow, what the hell have I done? 
you know, looking around thinking, what the hell am I doing? And it's hard being a recruit at the best of time, but they had literally just come out of conflict. So they weren't going to listen to any snotty horse kid from the West Midlands trying to think he's tough. And it, it, it was an eye opener. And I was like thinking I was out of my depth. This is too hard for me, maybe too hard for me, but, I'll, I, but, but what I do remember about it was looking at like my instructor who'd been in the Falklands, been shot in the face and his scars were still fresh. Looking at him thinking, wow, I've got so much respect for that person. That's who I want to be, you know? I want to be not this kid from the, the Midlands who was in a gang and got stabbed and died and all this nonsense. I want to be that person there. But it was a tough time. Yeah, yeah I bet it was. I mean, you've been, I think I'm right in saying something in the region, 27 years in the military, 27, 28. I say 27, yeah, I say 27 years, but actually it was probably a little bit longer than that because... When I left, as in full-time left, I stayed on what they call LDEP, I readiness reserves, for four or five years. So I joined in 83, and I left officially in 2015. So, I mean, if you want to work that, that's about 32 years or something like that. I, I, I only count what I, I see as the, the sort of, the main times of, of, not the reserve times, the full-on sort of stuff, which is 27. 27 years. Operations all over the world, obviously, there's, uh, and you never tend to get sent to the most stable of places, the nature of the job, especially in um, in your latter career. But when I speak to people who were around at the time, there's one conflict that people, when you ask them what stands out in your mind, it's Bosnia uh, mm-hmm. and the brutality of, of, of what people saw in Bosnia. I mean, from your own experiences, wherever you've been, is there something that stands out in your mind? I guess maybe in the different, you know, maybe in your younger career and then as you got more experience where you're like, which you can, you can still almost remember where you were and the smell, you know, when your emotions become so overdriven that it creates a different experience. Are there particular areas? I mean, is it areas like, I mean, it was part of Europe, wasn't it? But it's still part of Europe, but it was only a couple of hours on a plane across there to Yugoslavia and we I mean it's as we have now in Ukraine and stuff it's not it's not the Middle East it doesn't look totally different the weather's not totally different the people look very similar as it was in, in Northern Ireland as well it's you know it's this it's part of the UK is there anything that stands out in your that you will remember almost to the day you die is this particular experiences yeah a lot of experiences of all the conflicts I've been been in around the world and been part of yeah Bosnia stands out for many, many reasons, and there's many things, you know, that will always be there for me. And I think the first one was, you know, like you just said, it's part of Europe. It's on our doorstep. It was the 90s. Mm. But when I went across there, it was like stepping back in time into the Nazi time. Because what was happening in, in, in Bosnia at the time, the former Yugoslavia, was exactly the same as World War Two with the Nazis, you know, ethnic, ethnically cleansing people wiping out generations of families and people for for a belief or religion or whatever it was. And just to, in the 90s, stepping into that and seeing it, thinking, wow, what the hell is going on? And, and, you know, being there, seeing bodies on the streets, seeing tanks burnt out, seeing buildings burnt out and all this sort of stuff, it's, it's kind of what I've expected. It was a war zone. But then I remember one day coming across like a mass amount of bodies hidden in a a small apple orchard. And I remember coming down towards the village where it was and it was beautiful. Just like you see on a postcard, a river, white buildings, you know, beautiful. You thought, wow. But you could smell, you could smell death. You could smell, you know, dead bodies. And as we came down, I remember looking over to the left-hand side and seeing an orchard, but a, a pile of something with blue tarpaulin over it. And I just knew that wasn't anything other than bodies. So anyway, we end up round, I'll cut it kind of short, we end, we end up round this thing, pulling the tarpaulin off, and it was bodies. It was, it was everything from children to soldiers to normal civilians to grand people. And they were killed between, within probably five days to five hours, two hours, because the people on top were still almost smoking, smouldering and blood. It, it was horrendous. So seeing that sight, and that will always stick in my mind, seeing that. 
But the thing about all that was, I thought, right, this is war, and I know horrible things happen in war, but this didn't make sense to me because I looked at it and I thought, well, firstly, most of these are civilians. Mm. Soldiers don't do this. This is not what soldiers do. Because if that was my troops fighting through this, I would not allow any of that to happen, what I could see in front of me. That was the first thing. So I thought, this doesn't make sense to me, how this is happening. Secondly was, like I think I've already alluded to, this is 1993, four, whatever it was. This were in 1945, you know, which I wouldn't say we could accept it, but it happened then. It should never happen again. We should have learned from history. And then the other thing was, hang on a minute, these people here are all one sort of, you know, religion or another. They were either Croats or Muslims or Serbs. What the, how, did, how did this get to this point? And I was trying to get my head around how this could really happen and why it happened. And I think the only way I could sort of analyse it was, I, I literally remember standing there thinking, imagine if UK, England, not Great Britain, just UK went to war, you know, Scotland up north, Wales in the west, us through the central, and we're fighting a battle against the Scots, and while we're fighting, the, the Wales push across and, and create mayhem and, and all these problems. As we come back to our villages and find our houses burned down, our people killed, right, when we go into Wales now, we're going to do the same. And, and that's how we kind of... I kind of try to understand it. And that's basically what it was. Uh, you know, genocide being created on, on, on the, the basis of hatred because of what people were doing. And he did this to my family, I'm going to do worse to theirs. And it really was. He was down to people cutting kids' heads off and doing this and blindly... He was unbelievable. The overriding arch of all that was... I could, army, military would not do that. It would never happen. No one would allow that. But like Bosnia, like Ukraine, you know, like if you look at Ukraine today, you know, so many people, I'm going over there to help the fight, I'm going over to do this. And they're not trained soldiers, they're not trained people, they're just people who think it's great to go into war and do crazy things. And these people are allowed to run riot and run wild. That's exactly what happened in Bosnia. And that's why it sticks in my mind so much. Other scenarios I remember of, 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 of that place was, that was one, firstly, trying to analyse how and why this is happening now. You know, and in every war and conflict you go through, there's all, it's, it's never straightforward. It's never two different lots of people, two different lots of uniforms fighting on a battlefield. It's never like that. It's always crazy. All of a sudden there's women involved, there's children involved, there's this involved, there's that involved, there's this, there's this crazy scenarios. Another crazy scenario I remember was going through a a village that had been cleansed. We were behind the, the people doing this and it was actually Arkans Tigers who was an evil person, you know, he just cleansed this village of everybody that didn't follow him and his religion and whatever it was. But in this village were people that were loyal to him and believed in him. So we came across this situation where Half the houses were burnt out. There was literally bodies on the on the lawn, hanging out of cars. And then midway through the village is a beautiful garden with the house next door on fire, the house to the right on fire. His house was great. The lawn was green and beautiful. There was a, a, a red BMW in the drive and the guy is washing it like it's a normal Sunday morning. The kids are chasing each, he's two, a boy and a girl chasing each other over a bike on the grass but yet left and right was, and I was like, I remember looking at it, and even today I talked to the guy that was with me, I go, red BMW, and he goes, yep, red, it was true. So it was that surreality of it sticks in my mind, and then the resilience of the people, mm -hmm. the, the, the genuine people of what they were going through and how hard it was, and but they still believed in hope and, and, and stopping this, you know, and we had, a, we had a, an interpreter, Kamala, Muslim um, female girl who was our interpreter and she was just amazing you know she didn't care about the, the factions and the differences she just wanted peace and want, but said anything we needed to say she said it exactly as we wanted to say yeah. it you know and I remember one time looking at a situation and, and it was her house that was on fire and this and she, but she she was able to still find the strength and the courage to go this is so wrong and so bad but we can find a solution to this. And, and looking at her and thinking, wow, could I do that? I, I don't really know. He was just so powerful.
So just thinking about you know that that scenario, that situation of conflicts and war and all that, that that's some of that. It's scarred me. Yeah. It's scarred me for life. It doesn't. I don't wake up screaming in the night and stuff like that. I'm not trying to say any of that, but it just reminds me of how evil people can be, but how be- beautiful people can be, and how crazy the world can be on a turn of a sixpence. Jen, it's an interesting point you make about when other factions get involved and it's not military. You've got people charging around, and we've seen it, you know, in recent years, haven't we, with in the Middle East with ISIS and people chartered surveyors go out and turn into people that can all of a sudden chop people's heads off and it makes literally no sense but on the other side of things when I mean you've obviously experienced things that most of us normal conventional people will luckily never experience but you'll have lost colleagues as well along the way what's I mean I've obviously experienced it from the size of of a parent losing a child but what's it like from your side when you lose colleagues and I don't know if they were colleagues you worked directly with or they were under you or they're in or whatever it was it's irrelevant but what's that like when you have to wake up the next morning and carry on like nothing happens and how do you reflect on it 10 15 20 years later how does that work with you I'm guessing those experiences again are kind of like welded into your DNA and into your memory because you talking about experiences there in Bosnia where you can remember the colour of the car and let's be honest I don't even you probably don't even remember the name of the, the hotel you're in so it, it creates an indelible part of your life doesn't it it's like muscle it's just such a vivid sense of, what's that like and what's it like when you reflect back on it you kind of you know you go into war you go into conflict you go to do the job we do we kind of accept that some of us might not come back we kind of accept it you, you know people say you train for war and you you you've rehearsed you you don't you, you, you train for what you think might happen in war and i guarantee it's never what happens anyway you kind of accept before you step over the line that possibility we won't come back but you don't actually believe it and then when it happens you know you kind of feel like you have to accept it you go oh yeah well bobby got killed and john got killed and dick kevin got i've had people die under me when I've been in, in, in charge. I've, I've had people die with me when I've been part of the same line as they have been. You know, so I've been through every experience, but you, you kind of do ex- state to yourself, well, this could happen, it might happen. You try to accept it and you believe you accept it. And, and as time goes by later on in life, you, um, you reanalyze and go, well, was it worth it? Was that right? Was that, you know? But I, I think you look at it and you go, right, why did that happen? Why, why, you know, have we ended up in this situation? And now so-and-so has been killed and it's really tough. You accept it and you get on with it. You go, right, we've got to stay focused. What's the bigger picture? Because this is why we're here. This is what we're trying to do. And you kind of say, okay, that's a sacrifice we had to make. At the In the cold light of day when, you know, the realities of it, it's happened and if you're lucky to come back and go to that person's funeral that's when it really hits home when you're putting that person in the ground and I always say to people you know if you ever go to Hereford and go to St James's uh, St Martin's sorry St Martin's Church that used to be our uh, place where we better all, all our all our the SAS guys if you look on the back row there I've had a drink with every single person stood mm-hmm. there in those graves which is fucking scary when I look at it and think about it but I remember why now most of them died, and I, I go, if one, of, if I had a chance to talk to one of them today and say, look, we're going to relive that battle, we're going to go again, but there's a possibility you'll die, I'll tell you now, they still go, I'm going. The sacrifice, and they've gone to it. The hardship for me personally, when I look at it, is looking down the line ten years later, when you learn more about why we went to that conflict, why we, you go, fuck's sake, was that really worth it? Mm. But at the time, it was worth it. And we have to believe what is genuine at the time and realities at the time. So it was worth it. Where it hurts internally and makes you fucking want to cry and think about it is when you stood at the grave and not that he's going in the grave, but he's one of us and that's what happened. So when you look around, you see the wife and the kid and the kids and you go, fucking hell. That's when it hurts. That's when it sinks in. You know, that the reality of that. But then you've got to go, you know, take a breath again and go, you know, 
that was a line we were in, that was a duty we're doing, that was the possibilities of what might happen. And as I, I kind of alluded to right at the start, you never believed it was going to happen, but it does happen and it has happened. But now you've got to get on with it, you've got to accept it and go forward. You know, but, but the, the thing that kind of always comes up is, did we do the fucking right thing? Was we in that right place? You know, and, and people going, yeah, you're just a soldier, you follow, follow orders. No, you fucking don't. We are soldiers, we do follow us, but we're not fucking stupid. We do actually question, go, hang on, politically, is this the right thing to do? Why are we doing this? We're not fucking animals or, you know, stupid people who go, oh, we've got to do this. So at that time, you base it on who's giving you the information, what's the truth? What is, why are we doing, are we doing this to make this a better place? It's a big focus, it's a big risk, it's a big sacrifice, but it's for the greater good. And that's what you always believe as a soldier when you go into any conflict, you know? And you do, and you believe it's it's right, and you can only do that on what you've been told and fed at the time, and you can do your due diligence yourself. But there's only so much you can know. Then you find out ten years later. Well, actually, there was that was a lie because he did this and she was doing that. But it's too fucking late then, anyway. So you can't you rest on your laurels of I did the right thing at the right time. I agree with you, and I think I mean we're coming up as we were saying to remembrance, and for us having lost James um, in Afghanistan, it's nice to know that the impact that he had on people still remains. Uh, and whilst he's frozen in time in 2013, 22, as they've grown, he still continues to have an influence on them. I mean, and they're scattered all around the globe now. Uh, and uh, all that we can ask is that people continue to remember that process, because obviously when we're gone, we hope that that process continues. Um, and I think it's little things like that that you hold on to. And I think you're right, it's the job that you train to do and the job in James's case that he loved to do and he excelled in. And we were saying just before we started, it's what a massive part luck has in these things. It may be a step to the right, a step to the left, a half second here and there makes all the difference. Um, and that's, it's not, is it fate? Is it not fate? Who knows? We'll, I guess we'll know that one day when, when it's our time. But. I think you've got to, to to retain your sanity on these side of things. You've got to look at it in a pragmatic way. And yes, you can all look at and dwell on the politics of things as we can with what's happened in Afghanistan. And if you did think about it, it would it would probably drive you crazy. But you can't because at the time, with the knowledge, and you don't know, you know, it, you don't know the impact that it had. It had a huge impact on there over the time. It hasn't ended up as we would have hoped, but. You know, I think it's it's just one of those, isn't it? So it's a difficult process. At that period of time, you know, it was the right thing to do at the right place based on the intelligence and all the rest of it. And the impact, you know, it, it, it had, him doing what he, James did, what he did, will have changed so many other people's lives. And, and, and you know, it, there's never an easy way to talk around this or talk about this, but... You know, James James went out there to do what he wanted to do, to help and to do the right thing, and that's what he did. And he, he paid with the ultimate thing, which was with his life, mm. you know. And at the time, it would have made a massive difference out there doing what he did, you know. And that's when I look at... I lo I, I was lucky, yeah? you know, there's always an element of lucky. Exactly what you just said, I mean, you know, one step to the left, one step to the right. I made so many little one steps to the left and right and walked away from things I should never have done. Never have done, you know. And I talk about things, scenarios. Not one, not two, not three. Probably five, six. Well, how did I ever get out of that? How did any of us standing here get out of that? And I still don't know. It's an element of luck, and you know, things happen for a reason. I guess I don't know. It's the only way you can rationalise it, isn't it? It's just it, it is what it is, and. Um... Uh, and we are where we are with it. I mean, I'm a big believer, you know, with with the um, the remembrance thing and rem remembering our our people that sacrificed their life because that's exactly what they did. It, it's for the greater good and and for a better world that we have today. You yeah. Know? Although you see you see things falling around part around you and think why. It's still, you know. It's 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 still a better place to be. Of course it is. You know, based on, on on the sacrifice of these people and the military and stuff. Yeah, no, I completely 
Agree. So obviously, moving from there, you transitioned out of the military, well-documented celebrity bodyguards, all sorts of fun and wonderful things. I imagine your phone book is a, has some interesting numbers in it and you must have seen some crazy and wacky things. But from, from your, for your own, how could you almost live? It must have been the most bizarre thing to live in that life having come from the life you've just spoken about with tar Paulings with smouldering bodies, to then be on, I don't know, some fancy... It must have just been... You must have had certain moments where you woke up in the morning and go, how on earth do these two things coexist in the same on the same planet? It must have been the most mind-blowing experience. Mate, it was. You know, I, I went from this world, right, of clandestine, smoking daggers, you know, no one knows who I am, can't talk about, to totally the opposite, to being on every magazine in front of every camera, to who's this... And, and the thing was, the truth is, when I left the military, you know, after doing all my time, I needed a job. Yeah. And the job, got, job I got offered that paid the best money at the time and seemed the, the easiest route to go down was a bodyguard. It just happened to be with the most A-list people in the world. So I, I literally went from this fucking crazy world to this totally opposite. And it was that was difficult. That was awkward. That was like, that was like wow. You know, no longer are people shooting at me with guns and now shooting at me with cameras. And it felt more awkward having a camera shot at me trying to take my picture than it did somebody trying to shoot me because at least I knew where I fucking stood with that. So it was, re it was really awkward. It was really uncomfortable. And it took a long time to get used to it. But I had to have a job. I needed a job. I had bills to pay. I had, you know, I had to earn a living. So that was the 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 best offer to me. And I thought, right, this is where I'm going to go with this. So I was kind of living this life of trying to hide and but couldn't hide and reading every article in every magazine and every bloody news thing about this new kid on the block with his A-list. He's, he's in the FBI. He's in the <laughs> SAS. He's in the SAS. All these different things of who I am and what I am. No, it was, it was, if I said it was funny, I would be lying. It was kind of funny, but it, it wasn't funny. It was uncomfortable. It was weird. And, I, and and for me, I was like dipping my toe in, toe in the water, taking my toe out of the water, not fully committing to it because I was thinking maybe I can just do a little bit, get some money and go and find something else. And that was never going to happen. So then it, it took a while for me to settle down and accept where I was, who I was. I wasn't talking about me anyway and admitting to any, I was in the SAS, I was this, 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 this. I wasn't doing any of that initially. It was all, I'm just trying to survive here. I'm doing a job trying to set away the cameras and protect these people and do what I know best and earn a living. So that's how it was initially. And then obviously it grew from there, from being this side of the camera to going to that side of the camera. So the answer to, to your question was, it was awkward. It was really mm. weird. It was, it was strange. And everybody I spoke to was like, wow, you've now got the best job in the world. You've gone from, and, and, and it was a great job. It wasn't the best job in the world. You know, it was hard work. I was working 18 hours a day. I had no personal life. It was like being back in the military. I was away from family, making sacrifices. I was living somebody else's life to protect somebody else. It was weird, but I needed that job. And that's, that's how it was. It was uncomfortable. And the biggest thing was that just transition of from totally opposite scales to what my life was before for 27 28 30 years to now this wow almost in the blink of an eye yeah and it really was i literally stepped out of i came back from brunei to london to work still working in the military to stepping out for a quick break to onto this job and then that job became my job because that was it it was like wow there was no steady let's go and do a course on being, you know, uh, learning how to use a computer to do this, to do that. He was like, boom, put down the weapon, step out, put on a suit, go and do that. It was that. It was as clear as that. Bang, I want, you know, no transition straight into it. So it was hard. It was awkward. Mm. But I had to work, so that's where I ended up. And it took a long while to get used to it. Mad existence, really. I mean, you've had... A pretty full-on life, obviously, with all the different facets of it. I guess all, each part of it you've enjoyed. Each part teaches you stuff as you go along, from your childhood to the early years in the military to the latter years in the military, 
to the celebrity stuff. And it's led you to where you are now. Obviously, there's a huge amount you do, charitable stuff you do, uh, How You Met Jules, which is fantastic out in Haiti. Um, and it's it's incredible work. And I wanted... Is that something that sort of soothes your soul a little bit? Do you find it cathartic? Because I find it very cathartic. If you can just help one person, the difference it makes to them and their family and their surroundings and their opportunities is, is incredible. Is that you know people if you the more you give the more you get with these things don't you it's an incredible thing to be able to help people through your own experience be that financial be that through your skills the confidence you've got and different contacts it's a huge thing so i know you do a lot of work um uh through your main charity through through rebuild but you also work with other charities so what always draws you back you're like a sucker for punishment in that respect i know because you could do that probably 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 12 months a year with people reaching out to you, I'd imagine. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like you said, it's cathartic. It's, 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 mate, you know, I don't even want to call this fortunate or unfortunate, but I, I was privy to some of the worst scenarios you can ever imagine around the world, you know, conflict and war and natural disaster and seeing how people really suffer. And I look back at my childhood, what it was like, it was tough. I, I mean, I had a loving family, it was great. But it was poor, it was hard, it was tough. And I don't see why anybody should have to, especially in today's world, why anybody should have to suffer like that and go through those those, those things. So it, it always feels good to be able to help somebody. And, you know, learning about... We always talk about charity and what charity is and all that sort of stuff. And when I met my, my, my wife, Jules, she really educated me to what it was. And it was about, you know, giving back dignity, not giving this, give, giving clothes, giving money, giving giving back dignity, giving people the chance to stand on their own two feet. When you really sit down and analyse that and think, well, freaking hell, yeah, of course it is. That's exactly what it's about. Because nobody, I don't want to sit there and get have people give me this and give me, you know, nobody really does. You want to be able to be somebody and go, wow, this is what I'm doing, this is what I've done. But you want to give them the opportunity. And it's about having enough. And, 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 you know, the charities and stuff that we were with today don't have that opportunity, or most of them don't. So it is very, you know, it's it's very sort of um, soothing and warming to know that you're helping somebody less fortunate than yourself. And there's there's always somebody, people worse, you know, worse off than you are. So it, it's great to be able to do. It. And I work with my main charity is Rebuild Global, which is putting kids through education and you know school and onto job training. And my wife then gives them a job. So that's a turnkey solution to ending poverty because that's what needs to be done. But it, it, I also work with military charities and and you know other charities, any charities I can help with. But you've got to also on that on that vein, you've got to be selective because you can't help everybody. And if you try to help everybody, you become diluted and actually you don't really do a great deal of anything. So you have to be very clear about who you want to help and when you want to help and do what you can, like you know. And there are some great frigging charities out there, thank God, like yourselves, you know, doing great things. And and the thing with charity is it's friggin' hard work. Oh, yeah. You know. And the the other thing with charity is it's never gonna end. Yeah. It's never <laughs> gonna end. There is no end state. Yeah. The, the 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 thing is it's to keep it sustainable. Make it sustainable, make it worthwhile and, and give back the right things at the right time and do the right things, you know. And that, that that's bloody hard. Mm. It really is hard and but it's great to be part of it and be able to do that. You know, I'm, I know how fortunate I am to be where I am and have a platform and, and be able to reach out to people. And it's, it's it is it's it's bloody tough, mate, as, as you very well know because you run the charity. You know, but it's but it's it's very it's very relaxing to me. It's very therapeutic. It makes me feel it's better than any paycheck. Yeah. Knowing the fact that two more kids have gone to school, they've got through school, they've got a job now. It's brilliant. Yeah. Like for you, you know, helping people who are mentally struggling to, to get them on the straight and narrow and, and give them a chance to relive their lives again. It's, there's no better there's no better paycheck. Absolutely. Like you, when you're talking about rebuild, it's that thing that give a man a fish and he'll eat for a day, teach him how to fish and he'll eat forever. It's that sort of thing. It, it is that, mate. And, and you know, but but you've just, you have got to be, you have to do due diligence on what you're doing as well, you know, making sure that you're doing the right thing and not, you know, I went into, I remember, you know, lessons learned. I went into Haiti for the first time and I've always been involved in charity. We want to start getting to it, 
into it deeply and understand what it really was all about. I remember seeing all these orphans in, in here and going, well, I'm, why's nobody doing anything? Well, I'm going to do something. I went and got a bloody bus, put 20 kids on a bus, took them to the beach, not thinking about what I was doing. These little kids, you know, ranged from about two-year-old to about five, took them to the beach and they all ran in the sea and nearly fucking down. <laughs> I went, oh, fuck, I can't swim. <laughs> so I'm now running in the sea grabbing the little kids and throwing them back onto the beach. So as much as I was trying to well, I was actually about just to create the biggest fucking problem ever. These little kids have lost everything. Now are just about to lose their life because I thought I was doing something right. I think what I'm trying to say is you, you need to do your due diligence when you're helping, as you know, and go, right, what is the best way to do this? And it's, it's not the quick solution. It's not a Band-Aid. It's got to be the full dress in the full. But you have to do the due diligence and the work to do that. And... I'm now in that position where I've been through it so many times and I've got, we've got charities and I'm working with great charities like yourself and, and I understand now it's the right thing to be doing at the right time and when to do it. So I'm sorry if I've gone around a bit of a roundabout there. No, there is no easy answer talk. to it, is it? It's like all these things. There isn't, mate, but it's very therapeutic. It's very cathargic. It's very... It, 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 it's very... Um, whatever the word is, it, it, it feels mm, good. It does, it and, and, and good. much power to you for doing it. Well. And, and you don't, I don't need a pat on the back like you don't. You know, people don't realise when you're running a charity like you are and doing things and helping so many people, you're fucking hell, mate. You, it's sleepless nights. It's bloody hard work, mate. Yeah, and a lot of it's and not it's very not, glamorous. It's not going to get easy. No. The, the better you get at it, the bigger it's going to get, the harder it's going to get. Because that's what, that's what it is, because people need help and need support. And thank God for people like yourselves and everybody else there doing this, you know. Uh, but I'm in a great place now, you know. I understand hardship because I'm a growing up and the way I've been. I understand hardships because of where I've been and what I've done, conflict, and, and I understand what needs to be done and I understand why, where I'm at and I'm very grateful for where I'm at and what I have. I don't need a lot and most people don't. Forget materials, forget everything else, you know, and everybody can lend a, an hand to someone. Yeah. That's, that's how I feel about it all right now, you know. And, you're right and i guess that mantra that you always use always a little further is part of everything that you do as you move forwards now yeah. and when people re you must get a lot of younger people people who are looking for sort of inspiration if that's the right word or guidance or you know what can i do to better myself and do this do this do that I, and i guess it, it, I, it's such a difficult question to ask because you don't know about individual people but what's your you know if people ask ask you general and generic stuff what what part? What is? What routines do you have that helps you continue like that every day? I mean, I know you love the, the fizz like I do. Is part of your daily thing as best as it can be when you're travelling. But is there certain like key ingredients of your day that you have to do or try and do? Yeah, I think I think the key ingredients every day is when you get up is do the right thing, whatever the right thing might be. For me to kickstart my day and to stay motivated, I try to do a bit of fizz and have some sort of routine. Get up, do my fizz, it kickstarts me the day, it makes me feel like I've got a bigger day and a longer day. And then do do whatever you think is, you know, the right thing for whatever you're doing at that time, you know, and whether that's doing charity work, helping somebody or doing your own job, do it well and do it do it properly. Just just be a good fucking person. Mm. I think it's a key message I could give to anybody. Be a good person and don't look at, down on anybody and and just be caring and be 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 a nice fucking person. Uh, for you now, what's next? What's the future plans? Where do you go next? I'm just going to keep rolling the dice and just see what comes. Man, I'm going to stay with the TV stuff. I'm trying to keep running with the youngsters. You know, the keep up the fitness. I'm doing a bit of knee surgery and foot surgery to hopefully fix the problems that I have and allow me to carry on doing what I'm, I'm, I'm going to do whatever I can do mate the charity work I love I'm going to keep doing I'll support all good people that are doing great stuff like yourselves and other people um, and just enjoy life you know challenge wise you know okay, yeah, Jules will jump on me in a minute you know I wanted to break this world record parachuting blah 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 probably ain't going to happen now but it's in the dream somewhere maybe See, we always used to know when you came round, when it was your ugly face that used to stick its head round the, where we were in the accommodation, we knew we were in for a hard time. 
probably that. Are we, you were known as Billy the See You Next Tuesday <laughs> when you came in because it was the worst. It was you again. It's like because it just would go on and on and on. Everything that happened. That's what people don't understand about that show. It just goes on and on. And oh, yeah. It's relentless, isn't it? People only see 40 minutes of it on TV. That's 18 hours a day. What you people go through and what we put you through is brutal, mate. It really is. You know, SES selection is six months. We kind of condense that down to however long that show is, 12, 14 days, whatever it is. You know, and you're getting it. You're getting 18 hours a day. So we can, it's all about deprivation, sleep deprivation, food deprivation. You know, we're ramming in physical deprivation. It's brutal. It is brutal. I often, you know, I came across as firm and fair is what I am, I like to say. <laughs> well, I guess retrospectively, I, yes. I was a master of getting those six months of deprivation out of you in five days. Yeah, it was just, <laughs> it's just, and you can't get across the smell and the, that jungle, the smell of it and the, the humidity and it just comes to life at night. Yeah, you lay down and there's just noise. Yeah, that's all. Right. We've, we've we've just done the jungle again, believe it or not, and and it is. It's claustrophobic. People don't realise that the noise is intense. It's intimidating. Everything is intimidating. The floor starts moving at night. The, everything around it, it's, it's it's petrifying. People don't realise how bad that that's just the environment. Then us on top of you, time on top of you, the challenges on top of you. It's it's brutal. Yeah. It's more brutal than the SA selection in the jungle. Yeah, I guess because you've, you've, you've done years up to that point, so you know how to pack a bloody burger, don't you? And it's all of that panic that comes over. I mean, I remember my fingernails got infected because of, of all the crap in the water, and they got cut open, and I couldn't, I couldn't do my trousers up on my boots, so someone had to do my trousers up for me, stuff like that. The fingers up end up like Fred Flintstone's fingers. You know, the, the you people don't realise that little cut will become infected in an hour if you don't treat it, sort it out. And you you don't get time to treat it. Nah. You've got leeches sucking off you, you know, creating rashes and scabs and and all the... So you've got the environment, you've got, you know, the creatures, the the, the, the plants, everything's against you, the DS is against mm. you. It's it, it brutal, absolutely brutal. I think of all the environments, if I'm honest, other than the Arctic, which we can't really do the Arctic because... Nobody survive. It's just, it's just totally. The jungle is brutal. It's, it's the most brutal environment we we ever do, and it really is. And that's why I think the real SAS selection is based on the jungle, because that's where you you can, you can operate and soldier in that. You can do anything. What a great experience! And I'm, not a day goes by when I don't meet random people and they ask me about it, say what it was like. It's like I would do it again in a heartbeat. I just the experience was oh yeah I mean I did I was ill at the time I didn't know it but I'm probably fitter and stronger now. But even back then I remember looking and thinking why the hell are you doing this? Yeah. And you you just wouldn't give up. You were like he's here again, he's here again. The keen bee. And I wanted to just give up. I was, fe- I was feeling for you. But I mean what you didn't know back then was you yeah you 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 had an illness and you you know people don't know that and bloody hell to be doing what you were doing with what you had was. Oh my God. What a great experience. Ridiculous. What an amazing experience. It's been brilliant. And Billy, I can't thank you enough, mate, for joining us on the podcast. It's been brilliant. As always, you're an absolute gentleman and thank you. Mate, it's always good to talk to you. You know that, mate. And I, I, I love it. It's great. And keep doing what you're doing. Seriously, mate, you, you know, it's amazing what you're doing. And I know it's not easy. It's far from it. So I take my half to you, mate. All the best. Thank you very much, pal. Take care, mate.